Welcome to the Jumpstart Your Faith podcast channel, where you will receive the essential tools to take your faith to the next level. I am your host, Brian Ratliff, and I currently pastor Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. Here is the latest message preached from one of our services. Grab your Bible, pen, notepad, and get ready to jumpstart your faith. Are you able to finish this quote? They have said, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Have you heard that quote before? So many times throughout recent history, we hear about people who have allegedly died and went to heaven. We've heard about the four-year-olds who have supposedly got a glimpse of heaven. We have heard about adult men and women who have supposedly died in a hospital bed and came back to consciousness and have described what they thought they saw as heaven. I find it interesting that the greatest Christian of all time, the Apostle Paul, was on his first missionary journey in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 13 and 14, we read about his first missionary journey. And him and some of his comrades in the Lord's army go into this area to share the good news of the gospel. And I'm telling you, in Acts chapter 14, lives are being changed by the power of the gospel. And we see that some Jews came to Lystra to stir up the crowd. And in this moment, they began to convince the people there to take up stones and to stone the Apostle Paul. And in Acts chapter 14, in the city of Lystra, we, we believe that Paul was stoned and they left him as a dead man. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 14, we read about Paul talking about his outer body experience. And most likely, it is when he was stoned to death and they left him as a dead man the Bible says that he, in a sense, was caught up to the third heaven. I have major reservations believing what anybody says about heaven unless it is the word of God. Because the apostle Paul, the greatest Christian from ages to ages since the day Christ left this earth, said that when he was in his outer body experience, he could not explain if he was still in his body or out of his body. Most likely he was transported in the spirit to heaven. And he said he saw things that he was not able to utter with his own language. We see the apostle Paul is not the only person to have seen a glimpse of heaven. Today, as we come to Revelation chapter four, we see John the Revelator is now asked by Jesus Christ himself and summoned to come up through the door into heaven. He is transported. And we see a major shift in this book of the Bible. We see chapter one is about John's vision of Jesus Christ. We see chapter two and three is all about these seven churches that Jesus has a word to give to them and how they represent all churches of all ages and how we can learn from those churches today. But then in, in the first three chapters, it's all about what God is doing on the earth. And now John is taken up to a scene, not on the earth anymore, but in heaven. And chapters four all the way to 22, we believe are all future events. And we believe now that, that in chapter four and five are to be studied together as a unit. And in chapter four, it's about God, the creator. And in chapter five, it's about God, the redeemer. And today, I just wanna share with you, I believe the theme of heaven, the theme in chapter four and chapter five, but we're only looking at chapter four today. The theme is worship. The theme is adoration. The theme is praise. The theme is giving God glory. So today, the title of my sermon is this phrase, God is worthy of our praise. 
God is worthy of our praise. Would you say that with me? God is worthy of our praise. Say it again. God is worthy of our praise. Today, look at verse number one of chapter four. Before I get into the meat of the message, I wanna share three thoughts with you, three words today. But before I get into that, I wanna walk us down through to verse number eight so we get a better picture of what's going on in heaven that John is seeing. Now, there's a major shift here. Chapters four, by the way, all the way to chapter 19, the church that we know of is not mentioned. It is mentioned, it is referred to at the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation chapter 19, and then as we see later on in the book of Revelation. But from chapter four all the way to chapter 19, the church that we know of as the church is no longer mentioned. And that has led many scholars to believe that, that it is from this moment forward, the church is no longer seen in view in the tribulational period. I do not believe verse one is a proof text to prove the pre-tribulational view of the rapture, but I do believe the pre-trib view of the rapture best explains Daniel's 70 weeks, best explains the book of Revelation, best explains Paul's uh, letters to Thessalonica and to Corinth when he's talking about the rapture. But we know that this is not a reference to the rapture, but it reminds us that one day the rapture is gonna take place and the church is gonna be called to heaven. But in this moment, God is taking John up to heaven through the open door to see a glimpse of what it's like. And in this moment, all he sees, first of all, is the throne, the throne of God. This, in a sense, is what heaven is like, the throne room of God. Notice verse two, it says, immediately I was in the spirit. Most likely his body was still on the island of Patmos as he was excommunicated there because of his faith in Jesus Christ. And there he is, his body's there, but we believe that he is transported in the spirit up into the heavenly realm through the open door. They are looking face to face at the very throne of God. And the first thing that he mentions when he sees, he sees the throne of God. I think this is very interesting here because the highest authority seat in the ancient Roman world was the throne of Caesar. And here I believe God is making a statement to John as he's seeing this. And John, in a sense, is writing to us now today so that we can be reminded that the highest throne in all the ages is the seat where God Almighty sits. He is the highest authority. And I also believe it's reminding us that as these churches in chapter two and three, we're going through tribulation. We're going through persecution and going through temptation that God, no matter the events that we go through on this earth, God is in charge and he's in control and he's seated on his throne. And today we can be encouraged that God is on the throne high and lifted up. Verse number three, the Bible tells us that as the throne, he sees his throne and then he sees Jasper and he sees Sardis, he sees Sardin and then he sees Emerald. He sees these great jewels. I believe these are representing how glorious and how splendid and how amazing and how awesome God's throne is in glory. So just imagine this, this term Jasper gives this idea of a diamond that is crystal clear. Have you ever looked at the rock on your hand, ladies? That diamond and how it shines bright when the light hits it? Just imagine now the, the, the Jasper diamond-like features of heaven and the glory of the Son of God beaming down and shining, and then the light of the God Almighty shines through. Imagine how glorious it will be. Then it says Sardin, coming from Sardis, a place that was mentioned where one of the churches were. 
This jewel was discovered there and it is reddish. So imagine a diamond-like crystal like jasper shining out the light of God. And then you see this reddish sardine jewel stone there as well. Then you see a rainbow that by the way, isn't like the rainbows we see, just a half rainbow. This is a full circular rainbow describing the eternality of almighty God, how he has no beginning and he has no ending. And then it also signifies the remembrance how we go back to the book of Genesis, how God set up a cloud and a rainbow in the sky to remind us he's never gonna destroy the world again with a flood. So there at the throne of God, that rainbow of emerald greenish in color is reminding us of the very mercy of God on his throne. Verse four, the Bible says around this throne were 24 seats. So imagine you have one major seat that is the throne of God. And then around this throne are 24 other seats and there are 24 elders sitting on the seat. So who are these elders? Many have asked. I want you to know that there are at least 13 documented interpretations about who these elders were. And it leads me to believe that we really cannot be dogmatic in who we claim the elders were. But I believe elders here, I'm not gonna bore you with all these interpretations. I believe these elders are 24 elders who represent the people of God and the presence of God. Some go back to the Old Testament to, to, claim, to claim that there's 12 tribes of Israel. So there's gonna be 12 representatives of all the nation of Israel and there's 12 apostles. And so there's gonna be 12 representatives representing the apostles. But understand this, that elders in the Old Testament and in the New Testament represented the leaders of that day. So you had the elders of Israel. They were the leaders of Israel. Then you have the elders of the church, that is leaders of the church. So I'm an elder, I am your elder. I know I might not be older than some of you, but I am your elder as a pastor. And so we see that if I went somewhere and I am a pastor of this church or an elder of this church, I am representing this church. So we see the elders here are representing the people of God throughout all time periods, or at least from the moment it was in the past. And here they are seated. They have crowns of gold on their heads. They are clothed with right white raiment. And then in verse number five, I, I, I love this verse because in verse three, we read about the glory of God is manifested at the throne. Then we read in verse number five, the power of God is revealed at the throne. And look at verse number five, it speaks about how there's lightnings and there are thunderings and there are voices. Remember the voice of Christ is speaking to John saying, come up hither. And it speaks about it being a, a trumpet. And we know that God's voice is likened to a, a sound of many waters, just the power of God and his voice and the thunders and lightnings. Have you ever been trapped in a thunderstorm? Have you? Like maybe in a car? Well, when I was cycling across America, I was in the middle of nowhere in, in Mississippi. And it was my turn on this, on this section of the leg to just ride away solo. And we had a little snack in our RV and then, then I took off and then the RV passed me and then the other car passes me and there I am all alone and I'm just thinking and I hear the crack in the thunder in the clouds up ahead. And I'm thinking to myself, if I can just get over this little hill, I'm gonna be a-okay. And the closer I ride to this hill, the further I go up this little hill, the, the, the more I realize that I'm not gonna make it. And I see a little driveway and a fence and beyond the fence is a barn and a shed. So I said to myself, I'm gonna park my bike here, hop the fence and go to the shed. And lo and behold, I get to the fence and like five dogs come barking and chasing at me. And so that idea was, was you know, quickly erased. And there I am noticing that these vicious dogs are barking and showing me their teeth and then they run away. 
to hide. And then the thunder begins to get louder. Then the rain begins to pour. And then the lightning strikes about a, about a football field away from me. In my life, I don't think I've ever been as fearful in that moment. Seeing lightning hit the ground just a ways away. As I think about how powerful a thunderstorm is, we think about how powerful lightning is when it strikes. Just imagine how powerful God is on his throne. He is the all-powerful God, and we'll see that later on. But I believe verse number five is just signifying how powerful this God is who's seated on his throne. And then it speaks about these, these seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Don't be afraid of the plurality of the term spirits here. This is a reference to the Holy Spirit and the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit, as we've noted previously. Have you ever seen the show Survivor? When I go to my grandparents to visit for holidays and other things, uh, they like to watch all these shows on TV and one of them is Survivor. And you know the show, like all these people, men and women, they go to this island and they try to survive. And then they have to vote people off. And the night that they're voting people off, they're around kind of like all these torches are along the pathway and it's very dim, just all the torches are lighting the way. And then the person, they go, they take turns, they walk down to the place where they write the guy's name on the card and they place the, fold the card up and they place it in the box. And then they determine who is voted off. And as they have these torches along the way, it's lighting the way. And as we think about the show Survivor and those torches lighting the way, imagine around God's throne are seven torches of fire representing the Holy Spirit. I find it so interesting that the Bible says that in the book of Acts that they were baptized with tongues of fire, that Jesus would come and baptize them with fire, John the Baptist speaks about, and how the Holy Spirit comes to signify that when we receive Christ as Savior, we are baptized with the Holy Spirit of God and our God is an all-consuming fire. And if you allow the Holy Spirit to just consume a little bit of you, I'm telling you, you will become on fire for Jesus Christ. Verse six, the Bible says that now we've seen all the jewels. We've seen the thundering and the lightning and the torches and the elders seated on their 24 seats. But now it speaks about a sea of glass like crystal before the throne. When I went to Israel, I went to the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea has so much salt in it and has so much mud in it that it will float. You will float no matter where you are in it. Whether you're just a few inches deep or 50 feet deep, you will float. And I remember as I began to walk just ankle deep in that Dead Sea, that as soon as my feet went underneath the water, I couldn't see my feet. I kept going and my knees were under the water and I couldn't, see, I couldn't see my legs. The water was so dirty. Then just last year, I went to Passion Island off the coast of Mexico. And as I began to walk into that body of water, it was vastly different. I could see every little detail of my toes and the hairs of my legs and I could see everything. And as we think about the clearest body of water on the shores of this world, it does not compare to how crystal clear this sea of glass that's like crystal is gonna be up in glory. Some have associated verse number six about this crystal sea back into the days of Solomon and his temple with the sea there. And I want you to understand this, that when you go back and study Solomon's temple and some of the things that are associated with the tabernacle in the Old Testament, I believe a lot of it is representing what's gonna be like when we get to heaven. Heaven's gonna be amazing. It's gonna be awesome. It's gonna be wonderful. But then the Bible mentions more than just a sea. It mentions these four beasts. Some have called them the living creatures. 
And these beasts are known to be four of them, full of eyes, eyes all in the front and eyes all in behind. They have six wings. And one of the beasts is like a lion, one is like a calf, and one is, has the face of a man, and one is like a flying eagle. I do find it interesting that the church fathers in verse number seven, they would liken the first one, the lion, to the book of Matthew and Christ as being king. They would liken the, the, the calf as the, the gospel of Mark and how Christ is a servant. They would liken the face as a man out of the gospel of Luke and how Jesus is the son of man. And they would liken the flying eagle as the gospel of John, how Jesus is the son of God. Now, whether all this is true or not, we really have no idea. It's just interesting and food for thought. But notice this, that here are these creatures and I think you need to understand the only way to understand who these creatures are is to go back to Ezekiel chapter one, to go back to Isaiah chapter six, and to go back to Daniel chapter seven. Because this is a prophetic vision that God is giving John. He's looking into the future. And when we deal with prophecy, we have to, we have to coincide and correlate with other texts of scripture. So you go back to Ezekiel chapter one and Ezekiel receives a vision from God and he's looking out into the future and he describes cherubims. And in Isaiah chapter number six, we see that Isaiah is caught up in a sense like to the throne room of God, like this one. And he describes these other angelic creatures named seraphims. And the ones in Isaiah six, they're crying out very similar words here in Revelation four. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty who was and is and is to come. And so the best explanation for these beasts are that they are the cherubims and seraphims continually worshiping God right there. And some have even described them as representing all of God's creation. We know that the angels, they have a hierarchy system and the cherubim and the seraphim reach the very top. We are told in, in the book of Isaiah that, that Lucifer and in Ezekiel, that Lucifer was a cherubim. He was in a sense the highest being that God created in the angelic order. And he led a revolt against God. And that leads us to the thought that yes, God is worthy of our praise, but why is he worthy of our praise? Let's look at verse number eight. These creatures are crying out Three words, holy, holy, holy. Would you say that with me? Holy, holy, holy. Say it again. Holy, holy, holy. Why is God worthy of our praise? First of all, God is worthy of our praise because he is holy. God is worthy of our praise because he is holy. The word holy, it literally means to be set apart. God Almighty is set apart. Notice the order of this throne. You have God's seat. Then surrounding him are the cherubims and the seraphims most likely. Then the torches there. And then you have, you have the 24 seats and all of them are surrounding him, but God's seat is set apart even amongst them. And we know that God, the son is holy. If God, the father if God himself is holy, then God, his son, is also holy. And we see that this past week, we've celebrated what we call Holy Week or Passion Week. And it's a Holy Week and Passion Week because we look back and honor the holiest life that ever lived. See, there's really only two ways to get to heaven. You either have to live a sinless, perfect life to get to heaven, or you accept the work that the sinless Savior did on the cross to receive your atonement for sins. Notice the word holy here. This, we gotta praise God because, listen, he is so holy. I think it is interesting that the first attribute they're describing about God is his holiness. And they say it three times. We see Christ had a holy birth and a holy conception. You see, when your mommy and daddy came together, it was not like the Holy Spirit planting the seed into Mary. It's totally different. Mary never knew a man sexually. And God placed that seed 
by the Holy Spirit and she conceived and then gave birth to the Holy Child, Jesus. And we see that he had a holy birth and a holy conception, but he also had a holy life. Can you imagine the God who wrote the 10 commandments on a tablet stone with his finger, never broke any of them in his 33 years that he lived in this life. Think about it now. He never said God's name in vain. He never worshiped another false God. He never broke the Sabbath. He never lied, he never cheated, he never stole, he never had a lustful thought for a man or a woman, he never committed adultery, he never had sex outside of marriage, never was unfaithful to a spouse, and now we know he was never married, but he was never unfaithful in that way. He was perfect in every way, shape, or form, whereas we do not measure up to his holiness. I have broken God's law, so have you, and that's why we need the holiness of God imputed upon us. He never sinned in thought, he never sinned in word, and he never sinned in deed. He lived a holy life. He also had a holy death. Good Friday is the day we celebrate that Jesus died on the cross. Now, whether he died on Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday, we can chit-chat about and discuss and kind of debate and argue about those things. But nonetheless, Good Friday is the day that we've set aside to hallow, to honor the fact that the holy child Jesus grew to be a grown man, 33 years of age. And there when he died on the cross, he died for my sins, he died for your sins, and for the sins of the entire world. The Bible says he was the propitiation. That means he appeased the wrath of God the Father to be our substitute on the cross. And in that moment he died for not just my sins and your sins but for everybody's sins in the whole world he died for every sin that you could ever imagine so that we could have life and then they placed him in a holy tomb it was set apart for him to lay and the bible says after those three days those ladies come they didn't see him there he was risen from the grave my friends, Jesus is alive. Jesus is not in the grave. He is alive and seated at the right hand of God the Father on his throne. My friends, you see Herod tried to kill him. You see Pilate couldn't find fault in him. You see the Pharisees hated him and tried to trip him up. The Sadducees couldn't deceive him. The Roman soldiers whipped him and beat him and hung him on the cross. And the Jews cried out, crucify him. But my friends, it was our sin that placed him on that cross. And he rose up from the grave. You see, death couldn't hold him. The grave couldn't keep him. And my dear friends, Satan himself could not stop him. He is risen indeed. And that's why we believe he is holy. So as these cherubims are crying out, holy, 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 they're, they're describing the holiness of God and the holiness of the incarnate son and the holiness of God, the Holy Spirit. Then it says, Lord God Almighty. Would you say Almighty with me? Almighty. First of all, God is, God is worthy of our praise because he is holy. But secondly, my friends, God is worthy of our praise because he is the Almighty. God is worthy of our praise because he is the Almighty. Do you know what this word Almighty means? Have you ever studied it for yourself? Have you ever looked up the definition and, and just, to, just, just to hear what it means? Well, let me just share it with you. Almighty means God is the all-powerful, all-ruling, all-sovereign, eternal God. So imagine back in verse number five, speaking about his power, this is the same God who, who created all the cosmos, who created the constellations, who created the planets, who created you, created me, created the seas, the mountains, everything in between, all the creatures. 
created it all. And if God is able to create the world because he's outside of the world, he's able to create all the laws, like the law of gravity, the law of thermodynamics and all those things, God, the law of death, God is able to defy those laws because he created those laws and set the worlds and the cosmos into being and into motion. He's all powerful. The word of God is so powerful, it speaks our lives into existence. The word of God is so powerful that it causes Lazarus to come forth out of the tomb. The word of God is so powerful that it causes demonic spirits to leave somebody's body and there they're free. The word of God is so powerful, it is able to declare our salvation on behalf of the, on the name of Jesus Christ. God's word is powerful and we have this word today. He's the all ruling God and all sovereign. The one who is seated on his throne in control of your life and my life. And God, you see, this is what sovereignty means. God is able to take the foolish, wretched, wicked decisions that all of us make, and he's able to orchestrate it all to fit his sovereign providential plan. That is an amazing God. And then it speaks about how he's eternal. I'm sure that you might've asked this question. I know many of them are asking it today. Well, who created God? Who created God? You see, the problem with that question is it assumes the God of the Bible could have been created. You see, God is eternal. Haven't you realized that throughout the book of Revelation and really throughout scripture, it says that he is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the ending, the first and last. You know what that means? It means that he's eternal. He had no beginning. You and I, we have a beginning and one day, you know, we will kick the bucket and we will be placed in the grave and we will have a celebration of service for our lives. One day it's gonna happen. But you see, Jesus is not like you and not like me. He's eternal. He stepped into our existence and he stepped out of it because he created it all. My friends, here we see that these beings are crying out that God is holy, that he is the almighty God of this universe who always has been, who always is, and he always will be. You see, the, holy, the whole concept is this. God always was God. God always is God, or God always will be God. You see, you have two choices. Either matter created itself, or God created matter. If you wanna believe that matter created itself, my hats are off to you. That takes a lot of faith. I'm gonna believe that the eternal God that's described in the Bible is the one who spoke this world into existence. Now, by the way, I think that so many people come to this chapter and they try to figure out exactly who these creatures are, who these beasts are, and who these elders are. That's not the point of this chapter. The point of this chapter is to tell us that in heaven, in heaven, in heaven, it's gonna be all about the worshiping and praising of our God, Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that these angelic beings, these perhaps cherubims and seraphims are crying out those words that is singing glory and honor and thanks to the one who sits on his throne, who lives forever. The Bible says, then the 24 elders are gonna fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before his throne saying, thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Today I want to draw your attention finally to the word glory. Would you say glory with me? Glory. Say it again. Glory. One more time please. Glory. The third reason why God deserves our praise is because God is worthy of our praise because he is full of glory. God is worthy of our praise because he is full of glory. Notice the word worship. Have you ever had a dog? Growing up I had a dog 
It was, the dog was half lab and half golden retriever. Solid black. Except for the white chest mark and his white tips on his paws. And as a first grader, I don't know, I was like five or six years old when my parents got the dog. I named the dog Tip. And it was my responsibility to take care of the dog, to feed him, give him water, all that good stuff. But I remember some days when I would come home from school off the school bus, I would, I would walk over to the, to, to the dog and, and I would pet the dog and play with the dog. But when I would bring food out to him, and other times I'd come out to him, he would sit down and he would begin to take his long tongue and lick my hands. And listen, I don't like being licked by animals. <laughs> then he would lick my nose and lick my lips and lick my ears and just lick me everywhere. Now, maybe you like being licked by animals, but I don't like being licked by animals. But I say that to say this, that the whole idea of worship here in this passage, it means that just as a dog bows down before his master and licks his master's hands, the Bible says worship means that we bow down before the creator of the universe and we give him glory because he is the only one deserving of our worship. In verse 11, we see the phrase, thou art worthy, O Lord. This goes back to the Roman culture. The emperor or Caesar was the most powerful being on the planet when Rome was the highest, most thriving country in the known world. The emperor would come marching in, either on foot or on chariot or whatever else he might've been on. And as he would be marching in either to a stadium or into a city, they would cry out, you are worthy. Caesar is Lord. So I believe God is making a statement here to encourage these churches in chapter two and three to say, hey, Caesar is not Lord. Caesar is not worthy to bow down before. Only one name every tongue will confess. Only one name every knee is gonna bow and say Jesus is Lord. And so he's saying, thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory. This is the same word we get doxology from. It says not only glory, but also honor. So we are to pay him all reverence and all respect due to his name. And then power, the same where we get dynamite from. This God is so amazing and powerful and full of glory and honor that all we can do is lift up our voices in adoration to him. It says that he created all things. It says by his pleasure, or in, in other words, by his desirable will. Did you know God willed you into existence? You know what a will is? A last will and testament. Somebody writes out at the end of their life of what so-and-so is gonna get, so-and-so is gonna receive of all their possessions. Well, here, I believe that God, in a sense, he, when he wrote his will in eternity past, he willed you to be in, in, in existence. He willed you to be part of his sovereign plan. And I'm thankful today that if you're alive today, God loves you in such a way that he created you in his own image. Man, woman, boy, or girl, you've been created by the handiwork of God made in his image. If I could summarize this chapter with one statement, it would be this. God is worthy of our adoration because he is the maker of all creation. God is worthy of our adoration because he is maker of all creation. In our hymnal, we sing a song. It's an old song. And I believe that the hymn writer, as he was writing this hymn, I believe he was going back to Isaiah chapter six and Ezekiel chapter one, and right here in Revelation chapter four. I'm not gonna read all the verses to you. I'm gonna read verse two. 
of number three in our hymnals. It says, holy, 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 all the saints adore thee, casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea. Cherubim and seraphim falling down before thee, which wert and art and evermore shalt be. My friends, heaven is attainable because Jesus rose from the grave. No other religious leader is able to testify that fact. No other religious belief system is able to affirm that their leader defeated and conquered death so that we in two could conquer death. And the whole reason why is so that we could, in a sense, like John went through that doorway into heaven so that one day we can cross through that portal of heaven and there spend all eternity worshiping him in spirit and in truth. My friends, the longer I live, the less attracted I am to this world. The longer I, I live, the less I care about the things of this world because the more I study scripture, the more I see how amazing heaven is gonna be and it's only gonna be amazing because of the work that Jesus did on the cross and through his resurrection. And so my question for you all today is this. I know this is a day that we've hallowed as resurrection or Easter Sunday. This last week is Holy Week or Passion Week that we've set aside to worship Jesus in a special way. But I wonder, is this the only week of the year that you're gonna worship him? I wonder, is this the only day that you're gonna worship him? Are you gonna be like those cherubims and seraphims crying out every day in ceaseless praise, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty? Are you gonna be like these elders throughout the ages to come that he is worthy to receive glory, that he is worthy to receive honor, that he is worthy to receive power? Are you going to live a lifestyle of worship to him from this moment to the day God calls you into eternity? God is worthy of our praise. Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning in to the Jumpstart Your Faith podcast channel. As a token of my appreciation for you listening today, I would like to give you my free ebook devotional called Jumpstart Your Faith 30 Days to a Renewed Faith in Christ. Just go to www.pastorbrianratliff.com to download it. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast channel to listen to more messages like today's. And if these messages have been helpful to you, please leave a review. If I could be of any help in your spiritual walk, please let me know by emailing me at pastorbrianratliff at yahoo.com. And one last thing, if you're in Roanoke, please consider joining us for one of our worship services at Clearbrook Baptist Church. Until next time, may God's blessings be upon you and have a great week.